I just really loved that feeling of being inside of an orchestra, like playing in an orchestra and kind of being part of a larger whole and losing that sense of self and getting lost in the music while you're playing it. I just really craved it. And um, I think I've been seeking out those experiences ever since. Our guest this week is legendary cellist Zoe Keating. Zoe is an independent artist who found success in fusing musical styles through technology. Her music has been used in television shows, radio shows, and has even been used in over 20,000 third-party videos. Beyond that, her work has hit number seven on the Billboard Classical Charts and number one on iTunes Classical Charts four times. She's a tremendous advocate for artists and creator rights and speaks at regular engagements about the mechanics of the music industry economy. Zoe joins us to talk about the path that music took her and the successes and hardships she faced on her journey in this episode of The Big Break. Zoe, uh, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. So where are you um, calling us from at the moment? I live in Burlington, Vermont, on the shore of Lake Champlain. Oh, that sounds beautiful. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Good. As soon as, you, as soon as you said lake, you had you had me going. So, yeah. um, And so, uh, you know, normally in, in the show, uh, we, we jump into some other uh, questions, but I think I have to lead first, uh, as I have lately, just with uh, how you've been managing the current you know sort of distancing we're not quite so much on lockdown any longer but uh as a i know someone who's an active touring musician i yeah i'm guessing you don't have any shows necessarily coming up so how how have you been managing well uh i was lucky that i had a tour in february and the first week of march and so i had my last show um i guess it was like the 5th of march in atlanta and then flew right back and we went right into lockdown. So, um, and then I did have some shows scheduled for the summer that have now been postponed until next year. So that's, that's pretty hard. I think um, for me, there's two things going on. One is that, you know, performing concerts for me is like going to church. <laughs> I think for, oh. for a lot of other people, like it's, it's, it's a significant part of my psychological well being. And I think I have to figure out how to, how to replace that over the, over the year. So there's that, but then also like, you know, our lives have been disrupted as a family and my son's been out of school since we were on tour together in February and now there's no summer camps. And so I've just been kind of floating through space as a single mom, just trying to, trying to uh, have some balance, you know? <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. I mean, I mean, everyone's kind of doing it a little bit of a different way. I like that you mentioned that it's, it's, it's like going to church. Have you been doing any of these like, um, you know, the live streams or anything like that? Yeah, I've done a few little ones. Um, and I find the, I find the medium really unsatisfying as a performer. Um, and also, you know, I have some technical issues in that I perform a cello with a laptop and I'm like live mixing eight tracks of cello. And so I have to have my laptop to do the performance and then send it to my desktop machine for the streaming Plus there's video and I just don't have enough arms and um, <laughs> I just need more arms. <laughs> yes. I can imagine. Yeah. So um, I think uh, the few that I've done um, have been a little stressful, like, cause I haven't had anybody on site with me to do the mixing. But um, now that we can have a few more people around us, um, I actually have somebody here in town who's going to do some of my mixing and like we've arranged that they might, 
I'll dangle some cables out the window and they will sit on my front porch and mix the show. And then I can just perform. <laughs> yes. I just, I love the, 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 the ingenuity and the resourcefulness of people. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, during this time in terms of things like that, I always find very interesting. So there's always this work around it. So everyone's had to like, you know, shift their brains a little bit. I think yeah. it's, it's, then- it's unfortunate, but it's also very interesting to see how it, how it turns out. Yeah. So, and then also there's the, the part that um, I think the live streaming medium is like, it's different and it's, uh, it's better if you can kind of interact with the audience. And for that, you need arms too. So, so I'm thinking, you know, the best way to do it is to do a little bit of performance and then a little bit of chatting with the audience. And for that, I have to put the cello down. <laughs> taking, me, taking us back a little bit to when you first, you know, became interested in music in, in, in general. So the reason I ask this is because a lot of performers and, and artists and songwriters and whatnot. I mean, I, I, my assumption is they have a little bit of a different relationship with music than those of us that pr- primarily consume it. So I'm just kind of wondering if you could take us back to when you first really, I guess, discovered music or how you discovered music and your, you know, h- how you maybe found yourself more attracted to it than maybe others. Well, um, like a lot of string players, I started pretty young. I was eight, eight years old. <laughs> um, and I think it really became, there's probably a, a time when you're a, a student when it goes from being just this thing you're learning to part of your identity. And I think that moment for me happened when um, we moved from England, where I had started learning, to the United States. And I was in middle school and kind of an outsider. <laughs> um, and so I think looking back on it, I really latched on to the cello as a constant in moving to a new country. Um, and um, I think that's really when it, it started for me and the cello became something that I could kind of lose myself in and express myself with. And um, I just loved the sound of it. So, you know, it was probably in middle school. And then going into high school, um, I just... I just really loved that feeling of being inside of an orchestra, like playing in an orchestra and kind of being part of a larger whole and losing that sense of self and getting lost in the music while you're playing it. I just really craved it. And um, I think I've been seeking out those experiences ever since. Oh, that's great. So you moved, so you moved to the U S from, from England. I, I kind of actually forgot about that as we were talking. Yeah. yeah I'm originally um, Canadian, but um, you know, we went from Canada to England and then to the States. So. And were your, were your folks, I don't know, uh, creatively inclined or, 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 you know, how did that. Yeah. I think, um, well, my mom's British and my dad's American and he was a draft dodger. <laughs> so uh, he went up to Canada during the Vietnam war where he met my mother and they had me. So. And in terms, just in terms of, uh, did they encourage you to get into music, or was there? Is that just been as happened as part of the normal school? Hey, you're going to school. Here's a selective, and try instruments until you find one you like. Yeah, at, in England at the time, you know, I know that everything's changed. Probably, um, you know, they had a recorder ensemble, and I think kids who had an aptitude for music were were approached and asked if they wanted to play an instrument. And my memory of it is actually a teacher saying oh, your tool, would you like to play the cello? And I actually didn't even know what a cello was, um, but they gave me a cello and I just started. (laughs) 
that's funny because uh, my uh, just a personal uh, anecdote there. My daughter just uh, recently went transferred over into middle school from from elementary, and she had been taking piano her whole life. And then they had this day where they had they, they could try every single instrument that they could that you could you could possibly want to try to see which one you wanted to maybe get into. And she's trying all these different things. And I wasn't there, unfortunately, but my my wife sent me a photo of her trying to. Um, just even hold the stand-up bass for a minute. And <laughs> the, the funny part about it is that my daughter is very, very small. She's on the very lower end of the of the growth spectrum. Uh -huh. um, and so it was quite comical because, you know, she yeah. just doesn't have the size. To, I don't, she couldn't play a cello, I don't think. She just doesn't have the physical ability to, to hold on to it and bow and everything like that. So uh, you're rather taller. I don't know if you were taller back then as well. Did that, did that yeah, come in? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was tall then, and uh, and you know I'm almost five eleven, so I think I had big hands. <laughs> okay, that might be where like, hey, she's got the she got the physical gift. So that's kind of funny. So the so was it always a cello? Was there any other instruments that you dabbled in, or was it cello from the start on? It was just the cello. Yeah, I mean, when I went off to college, I started learning how to play the piano because I was learning music theory and, and what have you. But um, really, the cello was my way in, and um, I just think it's a great instrument. I still do. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful instrument. So let me let me just jump into that uh, high school to college thing. So you're at what point? I guess as you're as you're playing cello, as you're going through all of this, are you thinking this is what I want to do? As opposed to you know what I mean? Like a lot of people playing instruments a hobby and things like this. But was there a point where you figured this is what I wanted to do? And when you went to college, was was your study geared towards a music career or something else? Um. I'm not sure I ever really had a sense of what I wanted to do <laughs> until pretty late in life. But um, I knew what I loved doing, and I did love um, making music. Um, but when I was in high school, I was a really promising student, and I was kind of um, – I was playing in multiple youth orchestras in different towns because – and, you know, in different cities, I was in two different youth orchestras. Um, I was in another kind of adult orchestra where I was the only teenager. And um, – there comes a point when you have to start auditioning for conservatories. And um, I think this happens to a lot of teenagers, but I just became paralyzed with stage fright. And all of those competitions and auditions would fill me with terror. And I could play anything in my room, but if you put me in front of an audience, an audience of one, I would just fall apart. Um, and... Uh, that just became a stumbling block because you, you can't get anywhere if you can't audition. And so I did actually have, um, I had a full scholarship to a music program at one Ithaca college, I think. And then also to the university of Buffalo to their music department. And, um, um, and I was applying to the Eastman school of music in Rochester, which is where I was taking lessons. But I just decided that I couldn't handle the pressure I thought, gosh, if this is what a music career is like, like constant auditions, life is going to be miserable. And I decided not to do it. And I went to a liberal arts college, Sarah Lawrence, where, um, you know, everybody comes out with a liberal arts degree. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did that because um, it really opened my world um, to all these different kinds of things. And But I could also continue to learn music. So, um, Yeah, so... so uh when you went to school, was it was it just a general liberal arts degree then, or were you majoring like in music or something like that? Um, Sarah Lawrence, you have you just get a general liberal arts degree, and you can have a concentration in something. So I had a concentration in music, um, okay. but they give you a pretty balanced old school liberal arts education. And 
one thing that was great there was it, Sarah Lawrence is tiny. It's outside of New York city. And, um, there was this, uh, you know, they have a long history of kind of experimental avant-garde musicians having gone there like Yoko Ono. Um, and they had this amazing, um, like a uh, recording studio there that had, it was done in the sixties and seventies and it had all of the patch chord synthesizers. <laughs> it had like a wall Moog. It had an ARP, it had a bouclet, it had a big reel to reel recorder. And um, I took electronic music, not really knowing what to expect. And that's where I learned how to, you know, they taught recording and engineering and I started playing the cello with the patch chord synthesizer <laughs> and making like recordings on tape that I had to splice. And, um, you know, it was, that was retro even then, but it was like, nobody was interested in this. And there were only eight people in that class. And uh, it was an incredible opportunity. And I'm so, I, I think of that as the beginning of my composing life because I started writing music for the first time for that. Yeah. And that's interesting that you, you say that because as you were talking, I was about to ask that same question was, this sounds like the thing that would get you, you know, from performing to actually composing, because there's a big difference that we could talk all to all we want about, you know, playing the cello and you mentioned playing with orchestras and things like that. But what really, uh, it, I think what kind of sets you apart a little bit is that you're, you're composing a lot of your, all of your own music, yeah. really. So, uh -huh. um, talk to me about that a little bit, the process of, of switching from playing an instrument and being in, in, in orchestras where, you know, most of the, the work is, is presented to you already, right? Yeah. There's, of composers out there for cellos, cellos to play and whatnot. So, what what drew you to that, um, to the to the activity of writing music? Well, I think there's a phenomenon that that uh, I've seen in other cellists where cellists like to figure stuff out. And when I was in my youth orchestra, I remember senior year, all the cellists we formed like a club basically, and um, we would have our orchestra rehearsals on Sundays. But we would often like meet up earlier or stay afterwards and go to someone's house and just play the cello together, like all eight of us. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we would, each of us would like work out our favorite songs and play them on the cello. Like we worked out the Beatles, you know, we, we had, um, you know, we were trying to figure out how to play Depeche Mode. You know, this is the late eighties, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> um, and, uh, um, and that was when I was like, wow, you know, eight cellos together sounds awesome. <laughs> so I think that just like the love of that sound and the, f the fun and the camaraderie of, of um, trying to figure stuff out on your instrument was really started then. And then when I was at Sarah Lawrence in this electronic music studio, um, it was the first time I'd ever recorded myself. And um, the, uh, the first composition I did for my electronic music recording engineering project <laughs> was I took uh, Mahler's first symphony and I um, looped it and I stretched it all, you know, all using tape with splicing. And I then um, played on top of it and kind of made this spacious atmospheric kind of super slow um, piece that was based on Mahler's, the beginning of Mahler's first symphony. Um, and I really just loved the sounds like that the cello could make and, that's that's really when I started, and I, I've been doing it ever since. Um, so, in terms of you know going back to the career, you know, ma making this be something that you're going to actually do, was 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 that? Do you think the 
I don't know, I don't want to say the moment because it's so hard to always pinpoint a cynic yeah. moment, but maybe the beginning of thinking about, okay, this is this is more than just playing an instrument along to notes that someone places in front of me worth versus the engagement that you get when you're actually, you know, manipulating the sound yourself and actually mm -hmm. creating them. You know, was, was that something that kind of gave the momentum that what eventually became um, what you yeah. decided you wanted to do? I, I think so, it did, because um, I discovered that there's there's that feeling that I talked about in the beginning that I get from playing in a group of people that is really compelling and amazing. And I could get some different part of that feeling by making my own musical world to play in and just, again, getting lost in the sound. And the process of making the music is really satisfying. Like um, all of the like almost OCD labor involved in layering sounds and getting the EQ right and doing the, the engineering, the engineering and the composing are very linked for me. Um, that's just really satisfying. And so I, I really discovered that I liked doing it then. Um, and I didn't really know that again, I, it, it didn't, I had no idea how I was going to make a living doing any of that or anything. <laughs> I had no expectations. Um, so, uh, you know, nobody, I didn't know anybody who was a professional musician who was actually earning a living. So, um, uh, when I, when I graduated, um, and I went out to Sarah, went out to San Francisco after graduation and, you know, it's the early nineties and, um, I had student loans and I was a scholarship student at Sarah Lawrence. So money was not something that I had in my life. <laughs> and, um, uh, I had no idea that I would ever be able to make a living as a musician, but I kept doing it even while I had all these other jobs. Um, You're doing a very good job of anticipating what my next questions oh, really? are and answer them, <laughs> which is great. But yeah, like, you know, I get it. I mean, at, at that time of your life, for a lot of people, it's like, okay, these are the things I like to do. I don't know if I'll be able to sustain myself career-wise doing it, but I'm just going to do it for now and figure it out as we go along. And, yeah. you know, I did it from more of the writing side, I guess, but you know, the, and I think there's more of an established career, like, okay, I'm going to be a reporter at some point. That's, that seems a kind of a clear step. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, with you, I mean, first, you know, I guess maybe we could start with why did you move out to the Bay area? And then, you know, just maybe just, just talk about that, those early times in terms of you want to do this, you're creating it, but like how you're able to, you know, maybe you mm -hmm. could tell me a little bit about what you were actually doing side on the side jobs to, sure. to, to sustain yourself. Cause that, that's well, always interesting as well. It's, it's funny to say now, but at the time, like this is 1994. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, New York was a really difficult place to be living. You know, I had a, an apartment with a friend. And, um, you know, it was not the best place to be if you were broke. I was a waitress. <laughs> I had two waitressing jobs. And um, it was really difficult to make it in New York. And um, I had some friends who, from college who were all going out to San Francisco. And I had never considered California. I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about San Francisco. But somebody had an apartment that we could all stay in. <laughs> and um, so I was like, what the heck? I went and it's funny because San Francisco was cheaper than New York at that time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that changed really fast. But early on, uh, I, I was just immediately taken with, with it. Like the weather was amazing. The incredible light. I had never, you know, I'd never been out West before to California. And, um, the produce, <laughs> the beach. Um, and my rent was like $250 a month for in my apartment that I shared with someone. 
So, um, which sounds obscene. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can just imagine people living in the Bay Area listening to that now, just falling over in shock. I know. That was in 1994. So, um, and uh, so I just, I just stayed, you know, and um, I just really liked, you know, it's a, I hate the word, but I liked the lifestyle of living in San Francisco. And um, my first jobs were all food service, like, you know, mm. nearly every liberal arts grad, my, my degree seemed useless. Um, I was a, you know, a waitress, a prep cook, made sandwiches, did all these things. Um, eventually, one of my friends and I, we were the manager of a cafe in North Beach and stuff. And, and then uh, I got uh, taken advantage of um, in about 1995 with at this cafe that I worked at the my friend and I were, um, we were waitresses at an Italian restaurant <laughs> and, um, the owner, you know, we were always talking about she and I, how we wanted to start our own place someday. And the owner said, well, Hey, I'm going to buy this, um, cafe, you know, on this, this street and, uh, you, you girls can manage it and, um, you know, make the place that you were always saying you want. And he gave us a budget, which was pretty great. And we um, decorated it. My roommate was an artist and she, um, she did all the paintings on the walls. I got an old piano cause I wanted it to be like a, uh, you know, a jazz, like jazz place where there'd be free music. And, um, and we made sort of a, a, a lovely kind of Italian style cafe where we just had press sandwiches and, and it went really well. And after, about six months, we were turning a profit and I was doing the books and um, he had promised us, you know, a percentage of the profits once we were profitable. And so we went to him and we showed him, Hey, look, this is, um, this is how things are going. It's really successful. And you owe us, you know, we can start collecting our percentage now. And he said, no. Um, and he said, he said, prove it, prove. And we, we had like a cocktail napkin. <laughs> <laughs> And I was so shocked. I had never, I was totally shocked. I was like, we had put so much work in, into that. She and I, we worked from, we opened at seven o'clock in the morning and we would stay open until two o'clock at night. And it was just the two of us. We like lived a block away. We, she and I just lived there basically. And, um, you know, we had established it. It was like a popular place. It was, I felt like we had achieved success when there was this artist in the neighborhood um, his name was Vranas and he was in, in North Beach and he, um, he had a business card where he would put the hours of his cafes where he would be so that people could meet with him. And it was considered a great honor for us when he put on his business card that he would be at our cafe on Tuesdays and Thursdays <laughs> so that then he could meet people there. It's so retro. This is so like pre-internet. <laughs> That's great. Um, so anyway, I was so disillusioned after that, um, that I decided to get out of food service and, um, go do something else. I was like, I, I can't take it. Going back to, so you're there, you obviously you're working at these restaurants. Is this what you were, I don't know if you were thinking about making the food service in the, in the restaurant that you were uh, running be more your career, but like at what point did, you know, you were still creating music basically during this time, I'm guessing at, yeah. on the side or something, but like, what was what was what was the moment that that got you um, more? I don't know if it's maybe saying to say that it was more serious about it, or you know, was there was there anything that that happened that allowed you to sort of gain some momentum behind that activity from well, the music perspective? The thing was like you know anybody who's starting a cafe or a restaurant will tell you it's a it's so much work, and that just sucked up so much of my time that I didn't have any time to be a musician, and. 
you know, when, when we had this terrible ending to it, um, it was a real wake up to me that like, wow, all this time has gone by. I've been putting my soul into something and I have nothing to show for it. And I've not been doing my music during this time. And so it was kind of a wake up call to be like, I need to be more conscious where I'm putting all my creative efforts. Um, I don't, I don't want to be in a position again where I'm working hard on something and I have, um, you know, I'm putting aside the thing I love and, you know, I have nothing to show for it. And so, um, so, uh, during that whole time I was hardly a musician. <laughs> and, um, so then I, you know, I went looking for work so that I could continue to just, you know, make a living, but be a musician. And that was when I started, um, I put an ad out in Craigslist, not Craigslist, Craigslist didn't exist yet. It was SF weekly. I think that, um, you know, I was a, uh, a cellist. And I, I can't remember what the ad was, but I said that I, you know, I knew how to amplify myself and um, I was available for recordings and I wanted to play in a band. You know, I was kind of like, that was how you found other musicians back then was in the back of the weekly paper. Okay. Um, and um, one thing led to another and I ended up playing the cello in a rock band. Um, and then I started getting hired as a session cellist for some other bands in San Francisco. That's interesting. I got to know the name of the band that you played in. <laughs> the first one was called Van Gogh's Daughter. And they were actually kind of established. They were on Hollywood Records at the time. I, I actually, that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, they even had an MTV video. <laughs> were you in the video? No, no. They they hired me to play cello on their like second album. And, um, and then their bass player quit. And so I kind of replaced the bass player as the cellist. <laughs> See, and that's what I wanted to, that, that's interesting to me because I mean, I know a lot of folks are string instruments, cellists, yeah. bass players and things like that. A lot of times they, they, I guess, I don't know what the right word is, maybe we convert over to what, when we consider to be the more traditional bass, like the bass guitar and they're playing that. Mm-hmm. But you you never, did you ever think about going that route or did you, or was it always going to be just cello? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I did have some, some people asked me like, cause um, once I started playing with Vango's Daughter, there were all these other bands that were kind of established bands in San Francisco at the time, this kind of grunge era. Um, and one of the bands next door to our studio asked if I would play bass and, um, you know, replace their bass player. And I thought about it and I was just like, I just love the cello. <laughs> so I didn't, I just, I kind of just wanted to make the cello work. So I, it's kind of like I decided what my little box was and I just kept working in it. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you're playing these different bands and whatnot. And then, um, just, you know, take me to maybe when you, you know, you're, you're, we talked earlier about your, one of your real fascinations and, 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 and motivations with it was this rather intricate creation um, activity that you do around yeah. it, right? recording and kind of engineering all these things. Did that come back into play at some point during all of this? Well, um, you know, bands are often kind of incestuous, you know, like you have Van Gogh's daughter had several members and two of us formed our own group. And then we were all playing with other bands, you know, and I was as a cellist, I was playing with lots of other bands. And so me and this other woman split off and formed our own group. And um, that was when I really started songwriting in a, in a sort of a collaborative format. There were, our band was called Alfred. Alfred. (laughs) Alfred. Okay. (laughs) I know. And um, uh, we had a violin, a cello, um, a guitar, a bass, and percussion. And and I was singing at the time. So we had huh. like two singers. Um, 
and we started recording and making our own music. And I, I first started really engineering for the band. Um, like, and, um, I really liked that. And that was also at the time I had, um, I had, I had fallen into, I'd gotten a job working at a tech, you know, a software startup, <laughs> a new thing in the late nineties. Um, and the great thing was that I had money for the first time in my life, life, you know, not a ton, but enough to, to do things like I bought my first computer. <laughs> um, I bought, uh, one of those little colorful Macs. Remember they were all like candy colors. Oh yes. Yeah, so the little, the little, the, the personalized yeah. colors you could put in the back of the monitor. Yeah. Yeah. They had, they were like red and green and blue. Yeah. And they were like I remember. yeah so I bought <laughs> one of those and, um, put on installed digital performer and got like an audio interface. And that was the beginning right there. Cause that was when I was like, you know, started making music on the computer. And I think I started really making the music that I'm kind of making today. As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties they were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. I guess part of me, did you, did you think that this was going to be, because you, you still kind of straddle this, the, this line a little bit between the, the performing that you're doing and, of your own music and also the, I guess you maybe you do a lot of, uh, or you tell me, I, I could be assuming things wrong here, but like a licensing the music that you create for, mm-hmm. you know, all the use of sync placements and things like that. Right. Like that's, was that something that you were working on at the time? Um, I would say that like, actually the, the very first thing that I recorded was, you know, during this peak period in like the late nineties um, and, you know, right around 1998 to 2000, 2001, I was playing with like four or five bands on a regular basis. And um, uh, I, you know, lots of little spontaneous groups and I had formed a little ensemble with, a violinist who I played with in some other groups (laughs) and um, uh, we would just improvise, you know, we would, we would attach our, you know, my violin, my my cello, his violin to our effects boxes and we just improvise and we would play in like art galleries and stuff. And somebody heard us there and said, Oh, I would love music like this in my film. And so he and I um, quickly, like we just like went into his studio and we, we spent two days recording stuff we called ourselves string face (laughs) we called ourselves string face string face okay yeah um and that was because of like whenever we'd play in a a gallery there would always be someone who would just come and say like oh the sound of the strings and so we called that string face (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, so we recorded something and we put it in this person's film. And, um, and that was, uh, there was a little film, it was called, we did, we did another one that actually won a festival. It was called, the film was called Oregon. Um, and, um, and so that was like, you know, I've kind of been doing it ever since these small scale projects, some of them pay more than others. And during that time, uh, we also made music for this German couple who, um, they were, they worked in German radio, like making music for radio programs. And they, um, they used some of our music in one of their films that, that I ended up writing music for. And it was my first film score around like 2002, I think. Um, so it was kind of just, you know, everything, one thing led to another. And once I got familiar with the process of making music, I just started doing that. Um, and, um, yeah, I find, I've always found it really satisfying to make music yeah. for films and TV programs and just, yeah. So one of the things about, uh, that, I, that I find interesting about this particular show, this podcast is that, you know, I interview lots of artists and we call it the, you know, the big break because, you know, we always try to find that one, you know, that one story, that one moment where, um, this was the turning point, like, you know. Uh, this is this is sort of that aha moment, and what's interesting is that in, in some cases uh, there never really is this one big yeah. like seismic shift. It's it's more of this, it's more of an evolution, and mm-hmm. a gradual type of type of thing. And, I, and tell yes. me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like the case here. I think often you know the, we hear a story about an artist. We'll hear like there's some moment that made them made us aware of them, but the break is what made people aware of them. And they were probably doing their thing for a decade before evolving gradually <laughs> until at some point there might be a moment that they're ready for. Um, so I, for me, I feel like I'm continually evolving and I hope that my music career encompasses, you know, my whole lifespan and it will evolve and change as I am just like we're in this strange period right now. And my, what I'm doing is evolving. So I see it as yeah a continual a continual process, and there are little moments along the way where um, I did have little breaks here and there that allowed me to make a living at it, so then I could do it full time. And that's um, what I want. That's yeah. what, and that's the part that we tend to um, mm-hmm. stick into, right? Because yeah. there's lots of people that want to do various different careers, right? And 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 particularly in music and in writing and performing, it's very it's much more challenging than a, than a quote typical career, right? Yeah. And so the things, that's all the things we look for. We're looking for those little secrets that, that allowed you to continue doing this and continue evolving for, for this time. And, and so there's little things along the way here that you've already mentioned. One was, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, you know, being heard in the art gallery and being, having the opportunity to have music included in, in a movie, for instance, and things mm-hmm. like that. And I'm just kind of, you know, wondering as you look back at, um, at your evolution, you know, was there maybe one or two other points where, where this, if not maybe the big break where it was like from zero to 50, at yeah. least put you to that next track, that next level, that next, that next um, seam as it were. Yeah. Uh, that allows you to keep, you know, going. I think, I think there were kind of two in a way that allowed me to transition from, you know, enthusiastic hobbyist to professional musician. There you go. That's, <laughs> um, that's a beautiful yeah. way. <laughs> and, um, so one of those was in, I guess it was 2000, it was around 2000, I guess. Um, uh, there was this thing called the Internet Cello Society. Maybe it still exists, but it was a website, you know, like a, a messaging a messaging board 
Remember those? Yes. Um, and uh, it was a place where I would go and, you know, talk with other cellists about different kind of microphones for amplifying your cello, like, you know, just cello nerd, ch- techie cello yeah. nerd chat. Um, and up there, somebody posted um, this woman who said, you know, I have this band, Rasputina, and uh, we just lost one of the cellists, and I'm looking for a replacement. Um, and she said, please send, you know, send a CD to, and she sent, had an address, like an audition CD. Um, and so I made a little audition CD with some of my compositions on them of me playing cello and of me singing and stuff. And I sent it to her and she wrote back right away and said, wow, you know, yours was head and shoulders above all the rest. Um, can you move to New York? <laughs> oh boy. And I had just gotten engaged. <laughs> um, and it was a really difficult moment for me. Um, um, because I had just committed to San Francisco. I just committed to like, I just moved into this amazing warehouse. You know, I had a recording studio for the first time. Um, and uh, I really considered it. And I, I said, you know, I can't. So I said, no, but she and I stayed in touch. And then two years later, the cellist that she'd hired quit. <laughs> and she asked me again if I would replace her. And I, by then I was kicking myself that I hadn't done it. And I said, yes. I said, but I can't move to New York City, but I'll commute. And so um, so I went to New York City and I joined Rasputina for a tour. And we just really hit it off. And I just decided to stay in the band. And I was able to still live in San Francisco and join them in New York City for recordings and tours. And that was great because that was a solid working, pretty successful band. Um, and I was able to earn enough from those three or four tours we would do a year, maybe three tours a year, to um, quit my job. Um, and so that then when I came home from the tours, I could just work on my own music. So that was one. Yeah, so that was two. Okay, and then number two was um, so here I'm, you know, I'm playing cello in a, another band, but I'm not writing. But meanwhile, I was writing the whole time. Number two was, um, I think. It goes along the idea I have of you have to come when you're starting out, you have to just say yes to a lot of things and you can't think about the money part. Um, like somebody wants you to play at an art gallery, just do it, you know, or, and one of those things was among the hundreds of things that probably people asked me to do that I did. One of them was someone said, Hey, will you come play the cello in the desert for um, the 60th anniversary of the first nuclear test? <laughs> I was like, that is so weird. Okay. I, I got to like, hear where this goes. Yeah. I was like, that is so weird. I'm going to say yes. Um, and it was a bunch of kind of only in this, only in San Francisco, right? Like techies slash anarchists slash pyromaniacs who um, were commemorating the 60th anniversary of the Trinity nuclear test by creating a simulated nuclear explosion, not, not, not nuclear. It was called Simnuke. Um, okay. Out of, they got like six industrial blowers like you have in mine shafts. They, they put them in a circle and they ignited, you know, something in the center to create a giant mushroom cloud. And they'd been working on this for ages and ages to make a controlled explosion that would create a mushroom cloud. 
and they wanted to do it in this in New Mexico in the site of the Trinity test, but they couldn't get access. So we they went out to Nevada to do it. And it was going to be at, you know, 530 in the morning on July 16th or something. And um, the thing was the thing about when you get a bunch of pyromaniacs together is that they didn't, they didn't want people to explode into cheering after the nuclear blast, right? Because that would be against the point. <laughs> it's a whole moment of awe and, and appreciation, I guess. Right? Yeah, so so they somebody in the group who had seen me somewhere said, "Oh, I bet she could play something that would be somber enough and you know big enough that would mark the moment and um so I wrote a piece of music that i i i I was all in. I wrote a piece of music that for me encapsulated the awe, both the horror and the wonder of this unleashing of nuclear power." that humans did. <laughs> um, and I figured out, I composed the piece and I figured out how to play it live. And then I brought all my equipment out there to the desert um, and, you know, arranged to have a generator so we could have speakers. And I, <laughs> as soon as the blast happened, I played my piece and um, I was really happy with it. And um, it, this is the break part is that there were, there was somebody from NPR there. Well, actually, there was somebody from there was somebody from NPR, but there was also someone from Boing Boing. You know, Jenny Jardin. Mm-hmm. She was there, and then there was somebody from NPR West down in LA. Um, and uh, so she covered it as part of her Boing Boing post, and then the NPR guy covered it as part of his like you know broadcast. And um, and they asked if they could put the song that I wrote in the broadcast, and I had never really appreciated how amazing it is to suddenly have your music on national radio (laughs) because the next week my cd which i had just put out on itunes um went to number one in classical oh wow and and then the apple people made me a banner because it was you know they had to make a banner like top selling classical um it stayed up there and suddenly i had you know, money coming in from Apple that I had never had before. And um, that was really like, that was a huge financial break for me. And also awareness, like, you know, suddenly I had a, I had like a thing that I'd done that I could point to that then led to other things. That's really interesting. So I've been jotting down some notes as we've been talking. I'd like to try to um, highlight some of the more takeaway lessons here. And uh, I'm going to use it as a transition point as well. Uh, but what what I'm hearing here in in terms of for others that are listening, most of, most of the audiences are folks that are you know probably still looking for their big break, and so you know I think one takeaway that I wrote down was uh, you know you, you mentioned that you you had your I think so you said something along the lines of you created your box and you wanted to stick with it, which was you know kind of the cello, mm-hmm. and I think that one of those takeaways is that you 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 stick with your if you have a niche if you if you have the opportunity to create a niche it might be a small niche but that allows you to sort of own that space. And when people are looking for that thing, you'll be the go-to person. And it yes. sounded like, you know, in sort of this avant-garde cello kind of area, I, I, I don't imagine the demand is particularly high, but neither is the competition. So you've, you've right. kind of got the ability to, I, to I, I, or you could say like, there's, I've made myself a small pond and I'm the biggest fish in it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So be the biggest fish of your small pond, I guess is one thing. The other thing was, was uh, you mentioned is that you, you, very much put yourself out there. You said yes to lots of things and, and you allowed yourself to be discovered through 
many different channels, sort of the Zen idea of just, you know, doing it to do it, not expecting that the result, but the result will eventually happen regardless if you keep doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't say yes to everything. I would always say yes to things sure. that, in, that interested me. Um, and uh, it does really seem to me that if you can, if you've made yourself a small pond and uh, you want to be known in it, you have to be kind of omnipresent. And so I, I always wanted to be, you know, once this started, I, I realized that this was a strategy. I wanted to be, if somebody was like, you know, we need some kind of like edgy, unusual entertainment for this. I wanted to be the person they would think of. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But then the last thing I want to, I want to touch mm-hmm. on here, and it's okay if we take a little more time uh, than if, if you have the time for it, but you, I'm going to go back to your cafe moment where you had that, um, you were managing a cafe and the, and the owner didn't pay you a percentage and whatnot. You, you've been very well known for, you know, you, you basically, you know how to watch where your, where your income's coming from in, in this regard. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's, the, was that the genesis of it or not, but like you, if people don't know who are listening, uh, you know, you're very, you're very, um, uh, I'm not sure what, I don't think critical is the right word maybe, but like, you know, you're, you're, you're very vocal about, you know, um, streaming payments and things like that. And you're, and you're very open about putting your payment, um, information up there for all the C so people could kind of understand how these streaming payments work and whatnot. So was, where, how did, how did that become part of the thing? Cause well, like knowing, knowing where your income's coming from. And it, it does seem like a, for me, I like to try to tie it together because it seems like it comes yeah. from that, from that restaurant situation. But just, you know, can you talk about that a little bit, like, you know, pay, paying attention to that sort of thing? I think, I think that was, I hadn't really thought about that, that cafe, but it, it really did make an impact on me. The idea that I had put all of my energy into something, but I didn't own it. And so therefore I couldn't share in its success. Um, and that was really reiterated for me when I was a session cellist, you know, all through those late nineties when I was playing in those bands and I was, um, you know, San Francisco was a really interesting place. There were a lot of bands, there were recording studios. I was kind of a regular at a few recording studios in town that are now, you know, turned into luxury residences. They're gone. Um, and, uh, at least three of the bands that I recorded with, um, had their albums finished in the can, but then the record labels dropped them. Um, there was one, I think the red house painters, also Van Gogh's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they, and the sad thing was that I saw these bands lose control of their creative work and not be able to do anything. And it's a really terrible, it was a terrible thing for them. Like, you know, here you are, you're a musician, you've put your heart and soul into your work, and then the record label is not going to release it. And in fact, they're going to drop you. That's probably going to end your career. <laughs> it's, sure. a bit, it's a business decision for the record label. And I was like, wow, I'm never going to do that. Um, it, it was just like the idea that you would create something and not own it and not have any control over it was horrifying to me. And also in Rasputina, like, um, uh, the founder of that band, Melora Craker, is incredibly creative, um, really interesting person. She's she's also created her own world. Um, she was like the last. She was the last cellist on the. Well, she was the cellist on the last Nirvana tour. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know she she hasn't talked about those experiences much, <laughs> but that was sort of how she. That was sort of her break. Like when at the end of Nirvana, she started Rasputina. Um, and um, 
her first album, like she, you know, Sony owned it. And I remember when I was with her, she got a letter from them. So this is a decade later saying, after she'd released it on Sony saying, congratulations, you've almost recouped (laughs) and we'll start paying you royalties now. Um, And that was an incredibly successful album. (laughs) So like her first album that she did, you know, and, um, but like she couldn't, she didn't have any control over it, like wanting to get it re-released, you know, like we, we didn't sell it at shows. We couldn't sell it at shows. So I think all those, just seeing how all that whole industry worked really, um, I was aware of it. And so when, when it became possible as my career was starting out to just put my music on the internet myself, of course I did that. (laughs) And that's really how it started. And I think, I've just been used to doing that since the beginning. And also, I mean, I was rejected too. So I had, I had sent my first recordings to some labels and I had sent one to, um, you know, there were, there was this producer that I knew and another guy, you know, I kind of sent it around thinking that people are going to love this It's really unique. Nobody's heard it before. And the problem in the music industry is that if, if nobody's heard if it's it, really unique and no one's heard it before, it's actually the opposite. Exactly. That people <laughs> right. Right. They want to, they want to see something that's already successful. It's like this catch 22 situation. And so the very few people that did reply said, well, this is interesting. We don't see a market for it. Maybe if you, if you did some singing on it, it's instrumental. We don't see how this could go anywhere. And, um, and then also I did have that experience that I think a lot of female artists have talked about where I went in for a meeting with someone and they were kind of inappropriate with me and they showed me all the albums of the artists that they had done and how they had um, molded them to make them kind of sexy, you know, with a, mm-hmm. a, a picture of them on the cover, half undressed. And, and yeah. I said, you know, we could do this and maybe you could do a little singing or I could hire, I know this really beautiful singer who could do. And I was just so disgusted really that this, this music for me is, this is a, this is a musical expression of my soul. And it felt so cheapened in that context. And um, I really, really, really wanted to, I didn't want to have to use my physical appearance to sell the music. Right. Which is how women are forced into this box. Like, oh, what kind of women? Are you going to be the hot, sexy one? Are you going to be the cute one? Are you going to be the quirky one? Which one are you going to be? I was like, I'm going to be none of those. I'm just going to do the music. And um, so... I think I just decided to just release it myself and I really believed in it. And I thought, you know what, I feel like this has legs and I'm going to put it out there and see what happens. And um, so that was, you know, iTunes let independents without labels put their music on, I think in 2004 um, through CD baby, it was the only distributor at the time. And I did that. And then of course the following year I got that NPR break. Yeah, that's really, and the thing, I guess I wanted to, there's, there's one other point I wanted to bring up here and, and I'm going to see if I could find a thread through this in a way that, that doesn't seem too jarring, but like, um, you, you know, you were putting stuff out there on CD baby, it, you're, you're selling on iTunes and whatnot, and then everything kind of switched over to the streaming you know, format, which has really been the, 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 the area that you've had the most concerns with and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I guess what I guess what I just, I'm just going to kind of fast forward to the point here a little bit is that, you know, I mentioned before you, you, you do post your, you know, your earnings for people to see so they can kind of do the math, I guess, as it is themselves, since you are 
you know, you, you are self, you know, DIY artists, as mm -hmm. they say, right? You know, you, you, you are self um, um, distributed and things like that. So you don't have to worry about being confused by what the splits of the record label are and things like that. Like right. you can see the unvarnished um, tracking of, of the data itself. And the reason I bring that up is because that's actually how you and I got connected. That's right. I don't know yeah. if you remember this, yeah. but like I was a reporter at Billboard and I was writing a lot about all this yeah, stuff. Right when all this was, was happening, right? And Twitter was new and I was sort of a new reporter on Twitter and 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 I forgot exactly how it happened, but you, I think you had put something out there about, I was writing a lot about how people were mis, were, 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 were not doing the math properly on streaming because they were forgetting that art that labels take a cut and you had mm -hmm. put on twitter about that and i responded in some way about that about and we don't, don't forget the labels you're like i don't have a label and <laughs> and, and, and it like i, I can't i, I want i don't think i've ever talked to you about this but it really shifted my whole mind kind of looks like broke for a second mm -hmm. where i was like of course i'm writing about this stuff and i'm writing because of billboard you know you, you write from the label and sort of the publisher perspectives and things like that the idea that there was all these artists that were doing things their own where there wasn't that 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 contractual split made it, 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 it in like the second you sent that reply back to me everything changed in terms of how i thought about it and covered it i don't know if i ever mentioned oh, that wow, to you that's really interesting uh, and so and so the thing that i wanted to say is that you've always been very you're engaged in the topic but you're not argumentative about it and i yeah. think that's very very interesting and it really helps to educate people and, and help people think about things well, in new well that's my goal i'm i feel like um I started talking about this publicly just because I didn't see my voice represented anywhere. Um, there was a there was a big discussion about you know how the music industry needs to be saved, and um, <laughs> people were talking about you know people don't make any money from sales anymore, and you know streaming is here to help them, and and I thought there was just so much chatter around it, and but I thought first of all. I realized that nobody really knows how a musician like me makes a living or knows how the money works. Like a lot of the people who are discussing it in the tech world, they don't know how my life works. And so I started talking about it to say like, Hey, wait a minute. Um, I know you think that the world is divided into record labels and everybody else, but the music industry is actually really diverse. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of artists like me, and this is how my world works. And so I just started talking about it and, um, and, and also at the time there was, I think, I was always very transparent from the beginning because I was aware that a lot of the energy around file sharing slash piracy, you know, and Napster and what have you, was this idea that record labels were these big corporations who were screwing the little guy across the board, both the artists and the fans, you know? Um, there was a lot of kind of, bad energy around that on, on all sides. And, and so I wanted people to know, like, there's no record labels here. I'm totally independent when and you, that was exactly the language you used with me, by the way, no record labels here. Yeah. Yeah. This is just me. Um, when you buy my music, you're supporting my ability to keep making it. Um, so I would say, please go ahead, stream it. I'm, we didn't use the word streaming and, you know, download it. I think I actually had, um, I made a little post that went up on some like file sharing site saying like, Hey, thanks for listening. Um, if you like what you hear, I'd make music myself and I release it. Here's where you can support me. And I got a lot of um, support and kind of love from like, you know, people who were mostly in the, the techie, you know, world for that. Um, 
And so I was able to keep making a living because people would still go buy my music just for the sole reason of supporting me. In a way, it was like, this is pre-patronage, right? Uh-huh. Um, and so I could see when Spotify launched in the United States in 2012 that that one thing that they were doing in their launch was they were changing that narrative. Um, they had launched with a campaign that said never pay for music again. And then they also had a bunch of other campaigns about how they were saving the music industry. Um, and so I just wanted to point out that I didn't need saving. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was when I really started releasing my earnings. Um, and I actually met to Spotify's credit. I was very critical of this kind of marketing campaign of theirs. Mm-hmm. And um, they had just hired DA Wallach. Yeah. Um, and uh, he reached out to me and we had a meeting. We, we went out for a burrito in San Francisco and he, he asked me to explain how my world worked to him. Like he was like, he's like, I don't know about musicians. Like you tell me about him. <laughs> tell me about yourself. So I told him and he said, he said, yeah, I have to admit that, you know, I'm never going to have the volume that you would need to sustain myself on only through streaming. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a niche artist. Like there's, mm-hmm. I have my, I have my 10,000 fans, right? Um, he said, you know, that you're right. This probably isn't, you're probably going to have to make money some other way. And maybe this isn't, you know, like he, he admitted to that, but whether they would admit that publicly is a whole other thing. But, um, you know, so that's kind of how, how this, how this stuff started, how I was yeah. talking about it. Well, no, I mean, but then, and the thing that the, the underlying root that I, that I like to point out is just the way you go about it, um, which was inclusive, hmm. right? You, 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 you want to raise the point. Yes. You may have a point of um, conflict with, with an organization, but it was, it was never these, like the putting up these, these barriers, these walls and shooting, yeah. you know, lobbies it from behind and things like that you're you're you want you want you want to change the minds of people that might not immediately agree with you for instance okay yeah i i just want to 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 show them i i've been always frustrated by this kind of you know the two sides of the there's like the, there's like music industry versus everybody else and i've just been really frustrated by that dichotomy and um I think, you know, everything's more diverse than that. And I just feel like we don't have enough information. Like how can you measure something that you don't know about? And I really hoped when I started releasing my uh, earnings data, as though I was a public corporation, that, <laughs> um, that other artists would do the same. But I realized that there's a lot of, there's a lot of shame involved in that um, for some artists. Uh, I don't measure my self-worth by how, many streams I have. Um, but there, there is a thing in the music industry, like, you know, I have a book, I have a booking agent and a licensing agent and they do their damnedest to make me appear larger than I really am. Right. So they can get a higher fee. (laughs) That's how the music industry works. (laughs) Right. So, so like if suddenly it's like, Oh my gosh, look, they only earn this much. Somebody might feel like their standing is diminished and that people have a lot to lose. And then also I can, I can do it. Not everybody is able to like they might not be allowed to say what their deal is with the record label, right? You know exactly because well, I mean the, the the music industry is highly it's it's not a very transparent industry. No, and um, and and I also just really feel like I do feel like there's enough room. I don't feel like this pie is it's like it's just one pie and we all have to fight for our slices of it. I actually feel like you know it's not a zero sum game. There's enough money in this ecosystem for everyone, and I'm always conscious. And I think this is this is me from the beginning, I'm always conscious of when 
bigger players can take advantage of smaller players. And in the beginning for me, um, you know, we had this kind of wild west time of music on the internet. Um, that really worked for me because things were not so consolidated and now things are really consolidated and you just have like a few streaming players and um, there's only a a few ways really that you can release your music. And it's, I I get really interested when there's, you know, new platforms like TikTok and that suddenly break that paradigm and then artists can bubble up in a different way through a different place. Because as soon as, as soon as power starts consolidating, it gets very hard to hear things that are outside the mainstream. (laughs) So Exactly. Well, listen. I, 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 for one, I just I wanted to relate the story about about the the Twitter exchange we had because it was it was always something that I remembered. Not just because of how I at the time changed how I or just you know influenced how I was uh, covering the the space a little bit, but also this idea of um, when there's that point of disagreement. Not like you could have just you know put the hammer down and it could have turned into a war. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and there's so much of that. There's so much of that, particularly now, even so much worse now. But the idea of, of, of just you know being open and, and keeping yeah. that door open for the for a relationship to to, to to use that moment of conflict to establish a relationship as opposed to a you know a, a, a greater conflict I think is is, is really admirable. Oh well, thank you. I, I think that's just how I am. But so well, not enough harm. I mean, I, I just, you know you know maybe I grew up too Italian and I always want to swing. You know, but um, <laughs> it's it's something that I think is really interesting and it led to you. I mean we, we got to wrap things up here, but like, I, I know it also led to you other opportunities. Like you've heard your music out there, people using without permission, you reach out to them and it re- created a business relationship, for instance. Yes. Yeah. That, that show elementary is a perfect example. Like it was on CBS for nine seasons. They used my music without my permission in the beginning. And then I just reached out to them and we came to a licensing deal. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. instead of like, you know, take it down. I was like, yeah, yeah. no, and I have to know because my, my wife's a big fan of the show, which means I have to watch it all the time. And we actually are, are working our way through the very last season now on demand. We just, oh, wow. just kids and things, you know how it goes. But, um, what is, is your, is that your music in the, in the opening sequence or where yes. is that? Yeah. That my, is music, your, my music's oh, yeah. in the opening and I closed the whole series too. That's yeah. what I thought. That's what yeah. I thought. So every time we listen to it, I just got to say, I know the woman who read the, you know, <laughs> my daughter thinks it's really cool, you know, yeah. so, um, how do people, um, how do people find you? Uh, you know, how do people follow you? Like, how do you know, how, if they want to learn more about you, if they could read what your stuff, you know, Twitter, uh, anywhere else? Well, um, I mean, you know, I have a website like everyone else for people, mm-hmm. for old school people who look at websites, but, um, it seems to be, for me, it's all word of mouth. I, I'm one of those artists that like, you know, somebody somebody says oh have you heard this it's kind of cool and that's that's like how i make my world go around <laughs> but people like people listening want to hear more about oh, you not uh, music pract- but also like your you know your, your thoughts pra- about yeah everything. practically speaking zoekeating.com is where i have everything yeah. okay and you're also you are like i said you are pretty active on on twitter as well so is it just at, it's just at zoe keating yeah uh, zoe cello is my handle <laughs> i don't uh, know how that came about but i'm zoe cello <laughs> Okay, great, great. And is there anything, just to close, is there anything else you want to highlight, promote, let people know about before we leave today? No, I, I'm working You're on not a performing new anymore, obviously. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm not. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just sort of squirreling away on a new batch of recordings. So I've, got, I've got a real backlog, and I'm kind of not allowing myself to write anything new until I finish what I already have on my plate. So I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I personally hope that, you know, once, I don't know how long it's going to take for things to uh, free up, but I know that a lot of us here in Denver, we're looking forward to, to seeing you in Boulder when you had been planned. So, um, well, we'll, I will come to, visit you when I'm there. <laughs> we, we, we absolutely insist upon it. Yeah, um, I can't wait until uh, we can travel. That, 
say that again i can't wait until we can travel again exactly neither can i but it's going to be a bit but uh, anyway thank you so much uh, uh, for thank taking you yeah my pleasure thanks for tuning in to keep up with zoe you can follow her social media profiles and her website linked in the show notes We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. We'll see you then.